just as brave as I can be. I do not like the bosses, and the bosses don't like me. Join the CIO. Come join the CIO. I was raised in old kindergarten. Today's film is a short documentary that should have been made in the 1930s about women who played crucial roles in the sit-down strikes at General Motors factories in 1936 and 1937. Strikes that changed American history. Instead, with Babies and Banners was made in the 1970s by a group of women who were not filmmakers, but who realized that film was the most powerful way to not only recover this erased history, but to be an agent of change, just like those strikes, 40 years earlier. Hi, this is Chris Garlock, and on today's show, Elise Bryant and I got a chance to talk with Lynn Goldfarb, one of the producers of With Babies and Banners, about how, against incredible odds, the film came to be, and why it still resonates for audiences today. We're joined by labor educator John Ravit, who used various films and classes, including with babies and banners. The bosses ride fine horses while we walk in the mud. Their banner is the dollar sign and ours is striped with blood. Join the CIO. Come join the CIO. Join the CIO. Come Join the, the first question we like to ask folks is, what's the very first film that you remember seeing that really made an impression on you? Growing Up Female by Julia Reichert. And I remember seeing that when I was in college. I went to University of California, Santa Barbara during the, so I was there from 68 to 72, and that was an incredibly tumultuous time there. That was, those were the years when the Bank of America was burned down, that we were basically in a, a, a small community, which was the college community of Isla Vista, which surrounded, which was on one side of the campus. And we were basically under siege for several months because the police could block all the entrances into it. So we were cut off when one side was the ocean and the other side we, was, was blockaded. And it was really a lesson in political, you know, organizing and, you know, really understanding the power dynamics. And I was like part of it. And I certainly understood it intellectually and from the heart, but the, the reality of living in Santa Barbara both shape my political views and my views on women's history and women's movement. And we saw a lot of films, a lot of political films at that time, films that came from California Newsreel and other places. And, but I do remember growing up female as one of the first. We could, I would love to ask Chris, what was the first film in your college life that got to you? I want to go just a, a little bit farther, Lynn, like yeah. the very first film you saw when you were just a little person that like, I, 
I don't know if I can answer that, actually. I, I, I think that... Not political, not just... Not, no, not I understand. I'm just trying to think of... I don't know if I can actually answer that question. You know, okay. I have that memory, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember, like... I mean, I remember more books when I was a child and books that interested me, like Nancy Drew series and, oh, yeah. you know, just um, attracted to stories where women were main characters or women had an agency. And but even in television programs, I can tell you that probably. I like Batwoman. You know, <laughs> and Charlie's Angels. And when I think about it now, but that was the girl from Uncle, like where women were taking on that kind of a role. Gotcha. Hey, welcome, John. Hello. Hey, hi. Thanks for joining us. Where uh, are you, John? East Lansing, Michigan. Just I know, but where, what room are you in? He's in the Batcave. <laughs> I'm in the furnace room because I thought this was canceled. Get on my coat and tie and no, no, that's things I would have done. <laughs> no, no. Uh, this is, and, which... and is this just audio or if this really just audio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I can really oh, get other clothes. Is it really just audio? Uh, sometimes we use the video, but the we definitely use the uh, the audio. But I like it. It's, it's got a real working class feel there, John. I, I dig it. Yeah, it's, cool. a, it's a t-shirt. For East Lansing Jazz Festival, and I'm on the board and whatever. No, John, it's the backlight wow. halo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. anyways, the background is not my office. It's the first <laughs> room, whatever. Okay. To the question, I don't know how it was phrased. Was it about women and film or working nope. people and film? First First, first, very first film you can remember seeing, probably as a child, but not necessarily. It's a beautiful life. What I mean, that was on every Christmas. That okay. Was, is that the right name? The one. It's a wonderful life. And, you know, it's a little bit about the, the down and trodden. But Grapes of Wrath would be maybe the first I could think of that I saw that was really trying to highlight workers' rights or the, the difficulties of being a working person. Okay. All righty. This is, thank you all very much. I, I, Chris, I feel like shallow, okay? Because <laughs> <laughs> we, we we, most people say like Pinocchio. Or, <laughs> <laughs> we're clearly in a different group here, at least. But anyway, so we both rewatched oh. the film and wow, uh, I, I have to say, I don't think it is aged one bit. But Elise, as our resident Detroiter, I'm going to, I want you to kick things off if you would. Okay, first of all, thank you, John for pointing, bringing our attention to it so that, and then getting us hooked up with Lynn so we could have this conversation and watch the film. It is remarkable. And I felt sucked back in time, not to, 19, not to 1937, but to the first time I saw it back in the 70s. And I totally Ruth Chris. It is more vital now than uh, before because of documents in the first verse, in the, in the voices of the people who were there. So Lynn, thank you so much. Thank and you. so the, the question I had for you was like, where did this come from? Where did this come from? From, from growing up female with Julia Reichart to putting this, documenting this remarkable event of the UAW strike of 1937. 
Okay, so this is a little bit of a, a long story, but I think that it, it, it does tell the genesis. Okay. So I was a history major in college. And after, you know, after those tumultuous years in Santa Barbara, you know, where I was a history student, I had decided that I was going to go into women's studies and as a graduate student in, in graduate program. At that time in the early 70s, there were very few, almost no programs on women's studies. And I remember actually getting in political discussions with people about what it meant to be a women's studies program and would we get co-opted and how did you actually do women's studies? And so mm -hmm. I went into one of the, I think, two women's studies programs in the country, which was in Washington, D.C. Hmm. And George Washington University. Okay. Right. Okay. And I would say in its very early years, they had no idea what they were doing. Hmm. And we were in, I was like in one of the first classes. And so the program really started with the idea of women studying to women's studies. So they didn't really have a political framework. And, and so we all struggled with that. They gained it. And during the period of time that, that I was there. So we were largely on our own in, in, in that program and trying to figure out what we wanted to do and how to do it. And in many ways, that was probably great. We had the resources, the university, and, but we had, we didn't have the kind of guidance that we could have had. And I was interested in women's labor history. Wow. And, and, and the reason, and, and at that time, I didn't even know about labor and industrial relations programs. Possibly that would have been a better direction, but to back up for a moment, when I was in, at, in Santa Barbara, I left for a semester because it, it was just like we weren't going to school. We were occupied. We were demonstrating. I really wasn't getting an education. And so I took a semester and I moved to Colorado, to Boulder. And I thought I would continue school there. And I took a class by this brilliant sociologist, Elise. Now I just forgot her name. I'll remember her name. Elise Boulding. And she had her students... Uh, our, it, yes, help her with research. And she gave me the topic of women in violence. And I, I think, no, I think she gave me the topic of women in violence and the labor movement. Hmm. And so I started researching that. And when I researched the violence against women, and I re researched the demonstrations, the strike, the movement, I realized this was the area that I wanted to continue in. And so then when I went to graduates, oh, then I ended up leaving after a semester in Colorado and came, it was so cold, and came back <laughs> to, to California and Santa Barbara and finished my education there. And actually Colorado wasn't much different. There were demonstrations. It was, it's with the period of time and you just embraced it. And that was who we were and the education that we got. So I went to, to back to, I went to Washington DC and to George Washington University and being forced to, or having the opportunity to create my own way. Mm -hmm. I created my own curriculum around women in the labor movement. 
And I started with working, doing research at the Women's Bureau, but I also met a woman, Hilda Worthington Smith, who was the founder who organized summer schools for women workers mm-hmm. and in Bryn Mawr in the, I, I think the 20s. I just, uh-huh. you know. 20s and 30s, yeah. Yeah, and so I became very close to her and helped her with her research and autobiography and through that, got introduced to Workers' Education Local 189. Uh-huh, John Rivet. <laughs> uh, labor movement. I think I met her and went to a meeting kind of all the same time. And so I began to develop those connections. And okay, so this is all the foundation. And then I was in a class and Lorraine Gray was also in the class. Mm-hmm. I think it was a class in Marxism that we were both in in at American University because they allowed us to take classes in other universities in the area. Mm-hmm. And she had just finished the film called The Emerging Woman. And she was interested in making a film about women in the labor movement. And all of a sudden it clicked to me that film was a way to make history accessible. Uh-huh. And I had never up to that point actually been interested in being a filmmaker, had a minimal interest in film, which is you know, why I can't answer all those questions, but was, as I said, highly influenced by a lot of the political films. And I realized this was the way to tell the story that I wanted to tell. And so Lorraine and I got together and I had the opportunity this morning actually to finally find an oral history that I did in 1977, which I got to reread and start to recollect some of those early years. It was really tough. We had no money. She and I were both in school. We met a couple of times, two, three times a week to work on the, the concept papers and the proposals. But our original, the original idea behind with Babies and Banners was a film called Overworked and Underpan. It was supposed to be a film about women in the labor movement from the kind of the turn of the century to the the present, actually. That was the present was in 1970s. And we kept, when we couldn't raise any money and it was just it, it was a really hard time to raise money for films at that time. So then we decided, and we were both in school, so we like were writing for our papers, parts of the, the research for the film. And we then decided it really needed to be the, in the 30s to the present. And then from that time, it evolved into the, with Babies and Banners and Women in the Flint sit on strike. So once we were able to keep honing it down, we found the story and actually we had applied for an NEH grant for the long, for the longer film, but not, you know, very naively optimistic that we would get it. And sure. we, and we had some top academics as our advisors on it. And I do remember when we got turned down, we asked for a meeting with NEH to talk about why and they said they weren't, women in the labor movement wasn't a real topic. It wasn't the kind of subject that they wanted to fund. And so we were actually in a bit of a dilemma as we were trying to raise money on this. 
because most of the foundation world didn't really see women as a subject. And besides that, it was about the labor movement that really threatened a lot of their, really? their, their money <laughs> and where, the source of their money. So it was a real struggle. But I w- would say that the, the original, we did, when Lorraine and I were both in school, she did a paper on Flint. And I did a paper on women during World War II, uh, discrimination in women workers during World War II. And because we both had done kind of extensive work on two topics, when we decided to say, okay, what is the topic that we want to talk about? We did end up going into Flint and we had by that time a body of work that we were able to start with. Because this was a topic really nobody was writing about it. No, no one was, everything was original research. And then we went to conferences on women's history and found a few people that were doing women's labor history. And it really was an emerging field at that time. So that's a really long answer. And I don't know if I answered the whole question, but that's. (laughs) Yes, you did. I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, So where did you get funding? I think. Actually, I, I just re, re I, I thought the first funding we got was from it looks like it from a foundation called Lara Foundation in the Bay Area, and we got some funding from there was a, a project there was something called the Youth Project, and I believe I'm actually not remembering where the funding came from, and we got some from there. We got money from the Presbyterian Church in New York, which was I'm not. Gonna, I would have to look it up, but they were actually funding progressive films at that point. And, and we got a little bit of money from the Ford Foundation, but we had very minimal funding for what we were, you know, trying to do. It was very hard. I was rereading this interview that I did and remembering that at that point, like, you know, we were ready, ready, writing letters and letters, but we were typing them, you oh, know, yeah. because this was pre-computer. Right, and I remember that IBM. Yeah, finally we like had to hire a typist, Uh you know, in order Uh to make sure that we had neat letters that were coming out, and just what the challenge of working in pre-computer times on on all of this. But we went to a lot of places at that time. There was a, a small community of filmmakers doing films on labor. Julia Reichert and Jim Klein did Seeing, no, they did Union Maids. That's right, that's right. And then Seeing Red. Barbara Koppel, Harlan County. Deborah Schaefer, The Wobblies. And Connie Field, Rosie the Riveter. Yeah. That's actually the reason I didn't, we didn't end up doing World War II was because she was working on Rosie. And so there was a community of us that and probably were other people, but that's who I'm remembering as being the key filmmakers at that time that we were all struggling with getting money. We were all struggling to, to make sure that we got the attention to the stories on workers and, and women work. So you're going to school in Washington, D.C. and mm-hmm. making up your own programs and mm-hmm. hooking up with Sister Lorraine and y'all compare notes and get it in, yeah. knock on doors, get other academics mm-hmm. to help you out whenever they can. And what do you do? Hack your bag and go to Flint, Michigan? Yes. The first thing that we did, well, we started with Lorraine had this film, The Emerging Woman, which was very, which was on women's history. And it was uh, successful. 
And is you it know, and, and available? So, what? Is it available? Can you get it on YouTube or anything? Probably everything right. gets everything. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So right. um sorry. And so that actually was a calling card for us because we didn't really have any experience. I had no experience and I was a student still, you know, I mean, it was, so we actually, I remember we, first of all, we, Lorraine and I got in the car and with my dog and drove to West Virginia to meet with a, with Susan Riverby, who was one of the top people doing research on women in labor and, and really talked to her and went through some of her, you know, files and helped get a foundation and then we drove and when we focused on that it was going to be on flint we drove the flint and i and we were able through the archives through wayne state which was really helpful yes to look at articles and start to identify names of mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. and then we went through the and names names of people and locations and all of that and we started looking at people and just cold calling and trying to find the women and then we had it and i don't know if it still exists but there was like a reverse directory where you can look at addresses and find out who lived there mm -hmm. so we were able to go through the streets around the factory and everything and try to see if we could identify names wow. because by that time we had names and we were talking to people and and once we found a couple of the women we started finding others who knew that they were knew where they were around but i remember going through this and finding helen hower who was whose house we filmed in uh -huh. and her house was the last house over the gm plant Wow. And it was like, wow, like what an incredible location. And I don't remember how exactly we found, I don't remember how exactly we found any of the women, but it was somewhat through that process of just reading through files. And we may have put an ad in the paper. I, I know that I did that when um, I was researching women during World War II. We got the local paper to run a, we well, run a little story, actually, not an ad. Mm -hmm. And we were looking for women that had been during World War II. And, and we may have done this on, on Flint as, as, as well. And so once we started finding people, we started being able to create a, a foundation. Okay, who are the women? What do they represent? Who can be the best storytellers? And... I think we knew about Janora Dollinger. I'm just trying to remember this. I, she was well known at yes. that point. Yes. So I don't know how, I don't remember right now how the, all that fit in. Mm -hmm. And I do know that there was a, a, a researcher, a woman, Patricia Yagisian, who had written. A, oh, yes. Yeah. I just talked to her yesterday. Oh, you did? Oh, shoot, I oh okay. I'll, I'll, I'll send her the. And, and I don't remember when we contacted, when we were in contact with her and how much any of our research overlapped. Mm -hmm. But I do know that because I did most of the research, I do know when I contacted people, they had never been, they hadn't talked to anyone in since the, the late 30s on this. And that was I actually, now I'm remembering this, Nellie Besson's Hendricks. We found her 
and we found her family and she was in the hospital and mm. I, I don't remember what it was. And we went and we talked to her in the hospital and it was like, she remembered something that, that she had kept hidden. She just had not hidden, repressed, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, for mm. many years. And then she got better and she was like a changed woman. I mean, it was really a, it was something that transformed her life. She's somebody in particular that it really transformed her life to be able to talk about this and remember this. Because, you know, what happened is after the strike and after what the women did in Flint and helping them win the strike, they were told to go back home. Right. And they were recognized briefly. Mm-hmm. But it didn't amount, it, it, it was like, okay, this is a chapter in my life. Right. And most of the women that we talked to never even told their children about mm. it. Uh-huh. And so, uh-huh. Uh-huh. That was the big part of your film, was to mm-hmm. say, to talk yeah. about, and that was the big part of that anniversary celebration. Mm-hmm. I have questions and comments, but at least I'll be quiet a little while longer. <laughs> okay, I... I- did it, was it a coincidence that you all decided to do this for the 40th anniversary? Or did you well, know? We knew it was happening. And we knew at that point, okay, we knew at that point that Janora was going to stand up mm-hmm. in that meeting and say something about where are the women. Okay. And so by that time, I, I don't, I actually don't remember where we were, you know, if we had started filming, I think we had started filming. Mm-hmm. We were now very close to the women. We had, so we had very little money. So we just would film when we could. Mm-hmm. And so we knew this was going to happen. And so we did have permission to film the 40th anniversary. And so we were positioned knowing where Janora and Nellie and everybody was going to be sitting and what was going to happen. So yeah, so it was pre-planned. It is a powerful moment in the film. It's oh. just done. Yeah, but, but they created the moment. Yes. We just had the opportunity to film it. Yes. Oh. And there's a clue sign there. Yeah. Right? The clue yeah. started like three years before. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, oh my gosh. But here, I'm gonna I'm gonna let John jump in here and Chris if you want to. I have one more question because this is what I find really interesting. Lillian Hatchet. So often when the story gets told in women's history. Women uh-huh. of color are left out, uh, especially doing my research on the uh, um, 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. And that, that Lillian's in the story is and that opening photograph is stunning. Yeah, and, you know, that's a really. Women, the third woman is a woman of African American descent. It's just like, yeah. wow, <laughs> Lillian, I'm there. I'm in. Because you were talking about the girl books, Nancy Drew, yeah. I read all that stuff. But it wasn't yeah. until I read Toni Morrison that I saw me in the story. Yes. Exactly. And you put me in the story. And that wasn't it, happening in 1977 right. either. It was very important to us to do that. Political consciousness. Okay. You know, the, the movement that was around us. We had many discussions about this. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and actually, the, some of the original discussions around what the film would be about, about women that were left out of his, labor history. And then it was also going to be women and whether we included black men, mm. you know, and there was like, there, there was a, that was what the movement was all about. Those are the discussions 
that were happening at that time. Now, in order to do this with Lillian, and so we really researched this and we really tried to find the stories where where it was black women as well as white women in 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 the 30s. And so that we this is it's something we had a big discussion about because Lillian is in a sit-down strike in Detroit. Right. She's mm-hmm. not in Flint. Right. The Flint's all white. There's no so we felt that we had to broaden it out and to make sure that the story that got told was authentic because she was in Detroit, but that to try to link them in a really a somewhat subtle way. But but I, I don't think we would have made a film that didn't include African-American women. We're proud of that. We really searched. We loved it when we found Lillian and she was able to tell her story. Yeah, I met both her and Janora. Oh, good. Yes. Oh, yes. yes. You should tell that story, Elise. Oh, you don't think we're going to go to you and John before I go back to story? Oh, no, I, well, I, want, I want to hear your story. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know this story before today. Actually, you know, it was, it was the next anniversary of the sit-down strike. And I brought some students with me, University of Michigan. I was working at the Labor Study Center with Joyce and High Corn Blue. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to go. We were just like, eh, I don't think so. But I was like, oh, no, we're going to go to this. And they, they came and it was the Victor Ruther was still alive and he spoke at the event. And they were just, I didn't hear anything from them. And then years later, they each individually wrote me and said, I want to thank you so much wow. for making us go to this event because we had no idea of the history that we were he- hearing, listening to it and, and witnessing. And it was right there, live and in person. So thank you. And so oh, that's cool. Do you know what year it was? You have any idea? Oh, God. 70s or 80s? Oh, no, no, no. It had to be, I'm, I'm thinking the 80s for sure. Okay. Not. So so I'm going to actually add a Joyce and High Corn Blue story here. Then me, can... I get to do that. Oh, you get to do that. Okay. All right. Okay. Go ahead, Lynn. Okay. Lisa and I all work for High and Joyce, so. Yeah. That was part of our lives. Born blue kids. Yeah. So I so with babies and banners was finishing the last year that they were finishing and we had very little money. I got a call from Joyce asking if I would come to Michigan and um, take over her work with the Department of Women and Work while she and I went on a sabbatical to Somewhere in Scandinavia, I don't remember. Sweden. Sweden, okay. And and I said, yes. Be, and, and so, like, I, I'm not the director with Babies and Banners. I'm the producer and kind of the, the historian, the key researcher on it. And so Lorraine was in Washington and working with the editor. And I moved to Michigan and, and the, the, for, for a job, you know, and so... And that's so I, so I was there for, I think it was 1977, when I would go back and forth with Lorraine and look at cuts and make comments. But I was also trying to set the foundation for when the film would be released on the atmosphere. But that's where I met John. And that's where I got involved. In. So I was in Michigan for a year and or a year and a half. And I think a year 
with taking over when Joyce was gone. And then I received a grant from the Michigan Council for the Humanities to show with Babies and Banners, which was then out around the state. And we did about 50 screenings wow. in union halls and libraries. And it was actually the most incredible experience because first of all, carrying around a real a film reel because there's no video, there's nothing. And because of the grant, I was able to go any place that wanted to show the film. And so they were like small settings and they were libraries, halls, other kind of organizations and classrooms. And we, and we set up these screenings and it didn't matter how many people there were. Sometimes the women came if they could, or one of the women. And I sat in the back of the room for every single screening and had a form that I was like checking off on people's responses to the film. So I was trying to evaluate the responses and then the discussion afterwards. And then we had people write out evaluation forms. And we're so used to like getting grants that require that. But this was actually wonderful because people really did write and talk. And we have a pretty good idea of what the impact was so that I did that in while I was in Michigan. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That kind of sets up my question to John, who, which is, this is such an important, I was just thinking about this is a 44-year-old film about an 84-year-old strike. And if, if you'd have been watching my response, it'd be like, Chris is either laughing or crying through most of the film. And so, John, I wanted you to talk about why this film is, is such an important film. So there was a guy named Sidney Fine. Who, who was very famous labor historian, who said the Flint sit-down strike was the most important event in American labor working history. <laughs> and that was, of course, done 30 years ago when he said that. It still would be one of the most important. And this was very important, and it's been written about so many times. And up until Lynn and Friends' work on this, it was the, the Women's Emergency Brigade was not treated with the respect or importance in terms of the role they played. Because in retrospect, we realize that a lot of people aren't sure what side they want to be on. And when they figure out who's going to win, then some of them make that choice. And whatever, it's a complicated personal issue. So the, the Flint sit-down strike lasting so long was very important in getting the UAW going. And Victor Ruther played a major role as did the Women's Emergency Brigade. And so Lynn's video really brought that up and let people across the world know about it. So that was very cool. And so in classes I taught for union leaders, I would show it or excerpts from it. And it was a lot of fun. And it was very important in letting women know that women labor people had played a major role in the UAW and the Michigan labor movement, as well as helping out American Union. I want to ask Lindis and maybe John, you can jump in from a historical perspective and, and doing some research on this. These days, we just take, you know, for granted this kind of going back and forth between archival footage with current day footage. But at the time, 
that's not something that was, it was really done. And so how, was that something that you came up with? Is that something, I mean, what, how did that happen? Because it's incredibly, even now, 44 years later, it really works. It, it's to, to, when to have them talking about something and then you show footage of that thing happening. It, it's amazing. Before I an- answer that, I just address two things that, that were, were said. John, when you mentioned about Sydney Fine, that was one of the, the issues for us that actually got us started on the film was because he wrote this whole book on the sit-down strike and the women the women's emergency brigade was a footnote. They're not there. And, um, They're not there. And, and, <laughs> and that made us so angry. And that, I think, was a lot of the impetus of, like, where are the, the women really being left out of the history? And we actually, the film is 45 minutes. And we, at the time, made it 45 minutes. We probably could have done a longer feature. They weren't being done that much, you know, in those years. But we made it that length because we hoped that it could actually be shown in a classroom. That Uh, if it was under like an hour or 15 minutes, that it could be actually shown. Now, actually, I'm sorry. I forgot your question, Chris, if you could just... The the technique of the the archival against the current interviews. I, I don't remember that being revolutionary or anything. I think there were the, the fact we were part of a, a group of independent filmmakers who were making films about history, like I said, with union maids and wobblies and Harlan, Harlan County doesn't do that. But we were part, part of a generation of filmmakers that were doing that. So I'm not, I can't tell you like who did that first or whatever, but it was a totally logical thing to do. And the fact that we, one of the things that was important to us was that the film become relevant to today or today then, but today now. And that's why it was so important to lead with the 40th anniversary with Janora speaking out and to bring it to the present in, in the end. And because we wanted to make sure that those connections were there and people didn't just treat it as history, but that we learned from our history that we understand that history provides us with the knowledge and provides us with the, the clues to what is happening today. I, I would argue that is one of the things that, that makes this film so powerful all these years mm-hmm. later, because I, I do think, particularly in this country, there's a tendency for us to like our history safely in the past. Yeah. And those films that, that do that, I don't think last as well. And that's why we could show this film today mm-hmm. and there'd be all kinds of points of entry for, for, mo- for a modern audience to bounce off of. Let me get back to you, Elise. I was um, thinking about, yeah, the whole storytelling piece of it and having the current with the past and how that Usually, here's the pictures and here's the narrator, and we're going to tell you the story of this, right. not the voices. And I feel like that's the feminist piece of it that you brought to it is we want the first person narrative. These are the people who lived it, not talking about them, but talking with them. Yes, absolutely. It's a first person narrative, and, and it's only the women. And and I know that was some of the reaction when we first came out, and the men were like, the men in the sit down strike, and they really were people that would have talked and told us what 
happened or told us from their point of view or dominated actually the stage. And so we felt that the story had to be told from the women's point of view and that films, I mean, I do films with narrators, you know, sometimes because you just have to, but you, it's much, much more powerful if it's being told by the women or the characters themselves. Yeah. And, and, and we were lucky because there, it, it was a big event, the sit-down strike. And so yeah. there was footage. There, was, there were stills. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of newspaper coverage. And we had to weed through it to find some of the, on the women. And, and as we, you know, sometimes when we were looking through footage of, of something that had been filmed, we would look at the outtake and find out what had been thrown away. Oh, yeah, here's the women there. And then... We ended up, because we wanted to show that there really are um, multiple ways of involvement and participation. So the Women's Emergency Brigade, one of them, and that's the most, that's a powerful activist thing. But there was always women that were supporting the strike. And so we had the scenes of the women with the strike, with the soup kitchens and everything, because there was enough women doing that kind of, mm-hmm. you know, work as well. And that footage, oh my God, that footage was so hard to find. So the secret behind that footage is we contacted, we, I mean, we're looking all over about footage on, from, for the film. And we were at, I think, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers, which is now, I don't know what it is. No, it's Unite Here now, right? Anyway, we're at their headquarters. And I forget the the guy's name. Um, He he was a very well-known, like, labor educator activist there. And he- Bernie Firestone? No. Okay. Uh, We need to, I'll try to remember. But he said- I have a closet full of films that no one has gone through in years. If you go through it and if you transfer it to another, what did he say? I I don't even remember what we gave him in the end, but we transferred it to something. You can have the footage if you find it. So we just took home a stack of several stacks, maybe a car full of reels. Mm-hmm. And we went through them and we found the footage of, of the soup kitchens. Now it wasn't Flint. It was a strike in what was North Carolina or South Carolina. And, but it didn't look any different than what would have been done then. And it was the right period. And so we were able to use that because it's so hard to find footage of women doing things that where they are the center of, of, of it. And that was a very important find for us. And we helped them get their footage organized as well. Bless your heart. What a great and, to this. And, and we did that again, actually, in the new Los Angeles, where we took a clock, we, we took boxes and boxes of footage and went through it to find the label, find and label it, find what we needed and the label it for further. It's like doing archaeology, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And that's a discussion for another day. And then we'll come back, John, and do 189. The short plug was just this year, this fall, it's the 100th anniversary of Brookwood Labor College. And Lynn mentioned it. Mm -hmm. Next year is the 100th anniversary. uh, The staff at Brookwood Labor College 
created an AFT local workers education local 189 so it's the 100th anniversary and I'm working on a project with the Walter Ruther archives at Wayne State to celebrate that 100th anniversary next up we have another podcast the labor history today podcast so we definitely want to get you on to talk about that so that would be wonderful we are out of time for today but i want to thank you both uh for for being on this has been absolutely wonderful i'm very happy to meet you both and look forward to to doing more of this in 2022 and elise as always you get the last word thank you (laughs) thank you very much See you next time. Really, thank you. It's been so wonderful to talk about and relive those years. So it's it's a great experience. So thank you. That's it for today's show. The DC Labor Film Fest Bread and Roses series will be showing with Babies and Banners online on January 27th. And Elise will conduct a Q&A with Lynn after the screening, when you'll have a chance to talk with her as well. We've got a link to the free screening in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time.